1: That's right, Whistler, welcome to episode 203 of Star Wars Beyond the Films. Your Star Wars canon discussion podcast, your podcast of legend, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episode broadcasts on the Star Wars Report website, 2nd Airborne Division at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes as well as Stitcher and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the Bipolars, Star Wars fan, Mark Erleman. and with me like Cade's need to never let go, the EU guru himself, the count of those two
0: continuities, Mr. Nathan B. Butler! Oh man, so you gave me the setup, but I'm not sure if I need to go with like a Jack never let go thing, or if I need to go with a let it go Disney joke, since well, this uh, isn't story group canon, so I'll just say, howdy.
1: Howdy. How you been? Howdy, everybody. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so we're finally getting back into some stuff that we sort of left hanging. Um, I jokingly call this block of content that we're going to be hitting as we sort of alternate between Legends and canon as sort of the Legends loose ends because we had some stories or at least some comic series that we started covering way back when that we never got a chance to finish either because we were covering them as they came out and then just got swamped by other things like a year in review stuff or in some cases it was one of those series we were working our way towards being able to talk about Vector so we built up to Vector, did Vector and then in this case didn't come back to it or didn't come back to all the different arcs from it. So what we're going to try to do as we alternate between you know, a couple episodes here of canon, episode or so of Legends, whatever back and forth is that we want to finish out these, but also give you some context in case you want to go back and hear the other episodes about these topics, because it has been a while since we actually picked up these different comic series. So we're dealing with legacy this time so if you want to go back and hear our coverage of previous arcs of legacy where we led up to vector and then the vector crossover that included legacy the episodes you want to listen to are star wars beyond the films number 69 85 94 95 107 and 110 which are all the arcs before vector and then we covered vector in episodes 113 through 117 And the last two of those, 116 and 117, those were both the legacy part of Vector. We had not come back to legacy since then, which means we'd be picking up with the next arc. And we've got a handful of trade paperbacks left to go of legacy. We also did cover legacy volume two, but we only got through the first two story arcs in episodes 91 and 92 and then 134 and 135. So we'll try to give you that kind of context because, I mean, at this point, it's been what? 85 episodes or around there since the last time we touched on Legacy. So yeah, we've got some, some definite catching up to do. Yeah, run fast, run hard.
1: Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we ponder Star Wars Legacy Volume 7, Storms. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you our quick spoiler-free rundown.
0: Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. So what you've got here is issues 32 to 36, if you're looking at the individual issues. And this is somewhat of a disconnected volume because you have one story that takes place during Vector, which is Fight Another Day, issues 32 and 33. Then you've got the one that the trade paperback is named after, which is Storms which is 34 and 35. It takes place right after what happened in Vector. And then right around the same time, you've also got the story Renegade, which is issue number 36. And kind of like how Game of Thrones constantly moves between groups of characters a lot to the point where they had to split it up into two different books to cover all the characters when they got later in the series... What you've got here is kind of three different arcs focusing on three different groups of characters to progress the story along after Vector. That being said that means the creative team shifts. You have John Ostrander uh, doing the writing and then for the art, it alternates between Omar Francia doing the stories where it's not focused on Cade and the crew of the Minoc and then for the ones focusing on Cade and the crew of the Minoc, you have Jan Dersima doing the art. That tends to have been the pattern that they did with Legacy. The core group gets Jan, the other characters get someone else and they use that to try to make sure that everything was going to actually come out on time. I got to say, this is a, it's kind of a weird volume. It's odd because it's coming out of this major event of Vector. Vector didn't seem like it really changed much for Dark Times. It couldn't change anything for Rebellion because Rebellion just ended with Vector. But, whereas it did change some things importantly back for KOTOR, Knights of the Old Republic, I feel like it kind of did more changes to Legacy. It has more of an impact here, which is nice. So, it's all kind of setting up the next stage. It's almost like Vector was the season finale of season one, and now we're moving into season two, but it still feels much more connected, I think, than what we got with the switching of gears after Vindication back in Knights of the Old Republic, where it feels almost like Knights of the Old Republic kind of became an entirely different comic series after that point. It sort of peaked and then never quite reached that peak again. So I'm, you know, I enjoyed it, but it's another one of these where I can see that they're building toward other things, and while there are some great character moments in here, and this is still my favorite Star Wars series of all time, um, it does have me kind of sitting back with the, wow, it is kind of weird that this is a trade paperback worth of stories. I know it's just the next five issues, but it really does seem very disconnected when you look at the three stories individually that are in here.
1: You know, and it's been said before, even on our Facebook page, how this series has a Game of Thrones feel, but That lead up you were talking about very much feels like the end of season 5 and then when season 6 picks up and you're finding out what's going on with a certain main character that left gripping at the end you know I mean this is kind of ratcheted back and we're getting that window into the rest of the galaxy the events of what's going on concurrent with everything and that's something I really I dig like I, I get that it's that shifting of gears but it's that first episode it's kind of like necessary but I like the way that it feels like it does by ratcheting back picks right up where you left off so we we still haven't quite seen the full ramifications of what's going on with Darth Crate, but we do realize that what Darth Warlock's putting into place is going to have some major impacts. And this all springs out of Vector. So, you know, I like the way that that plays out. I mean, the the ratcheting back to me, well, I think if you were reading it, it may feel like a slowing down. I I think it feels very saga-like, you know? It it does feel like a TV network show in that regards. And I think that is one of the things that Legacy kind of does well. Like when the characters are focused on, it feels like you're focusing on the characters when you switch to the B team. It feels like you're switching to the B team. What I do also like too is that even though, like you said, the art of Jan isn't in this she's the, the main cast this artist does a really good job of keeping the background characters and stuff looking the way they look when jan does them and that's something i very much appreciated i didn't realize when we did the shift where normally that's something that's pretty jarring with with like series like knights of the old republic you know you go from one to another and get to bong dezo
0: and you're just like what is going on with the mashed potatoes yeah no mashed potatoes this time although you might call it a fish fillets Sometimes the drawing of the Mon Calamari is, I don't know, it's weird. You can tell they're Mon Calamari, but you're kind of sitting back going, how does that biology work exactly every once in a while? But I agree that Omar Francia's art here, of all the different people to step in, is one of the better artists beyond Jan Dersima to pick this up. Uh, And for what it's worth, just in terms of of kind of context here of what's going on these days, uh, Jan Dersima and John Ostrander, who did Issues of Republic, did the bulk of the stories here And did Dawn of the Jedi. They currently have a, well I guess it's not on Kickstarter anymore, it's on Indiegogo now. They have a project they're working on now called Hexer Dusk. It's an original sci-fi universe sort of thing, but it's got art in the style that you would appreciate if you were a fan of legacy. And, uh, I was a Kickstarter backer of that. Uh, in fact, I backed it to a level where we were concerned about whether or not we can go ahead and do the backing while we were getting our mortgage, because they said that certain size purchases would cause us to possibly lose the mortgage. So wow. we had to wait. And then once, uh, I was able to sort of convince Jan to open up a certain level of backing yet again, uh, I did a backing at a level where I get to appear as a background character in the book and get an original sketch by Jan specifically of that background character for me. I very much believe in the storytelling prowess of the duo of Ostrander and Dersima. Mm -hmm. Um, And this was the series that really sort of made that crystallize for me. So uh, for those who have never picked up a Star Wars comic from Legends before, I'm not saying this is the best place to start because it builds on a lot of previous continuity. But that said... It is a really good series, and it's a completely different storytelling era, so it's not like there's other stuff interweaving with it. Uh, I would say – and Mark, I'm curious to to hear whether you would agree with me on this. I kind of feel like this is a kind of comic series that couldn't exist right now. Like, it exists, and it has so much foundation and connection into so many other legend stories, you know. uh, It needs the backing of, gosh, Legacy of the Force. It needs the backing of the New Jedi Order. It needs sort of all these years of stories about the Sith, for instance, and uh, Republic-era stories and Clone Wars-era stories, like with Asherod Hit and whatnot, it kind of feels as though this was almost like the peak of where they were able to say, look, in the comics, we are going to do something that builds on this foundation of thousands of years of galactic history and gives you something that still feels fresh, but feels utterly connected as if Abel Pena wrote the thing. In that sense, I'm not sure they could do that today because I don't think they have enough years and breadth of material in all the different stories for Story Group canon right now to really have that kind of foundation yet to tell a story like this. Am I wrong? Is it, Am I thinking it relies too much on that background and it, and that's just a bonus? Or is this a story that couldn't be told today?
1: Uh, Well, it's a tough one because this one has a lot of things going on for it. So on that regard, I kind of want to say no, it wouldn't be a story you could tell today. But I think about what's being told here. And I think that, you know, if when they made the decision to go new canon, uh, you know, ratchet it back to 2014 and they made the decision to go this direction, right? Jumping even farther past, uh, you know, uh, uh, The Force Awakens. You take Darth Maul, make Darth Maul the Asherard Heck character, have him come back as Lord Krayt, have him bring out a new Sith. You know, maybe when he took off with the Mandalorians, he started teaching them the ways of the Sith and they became Sithalorians, or, you know, something new and they're the one order. You know, the one Sith is now Mandalorian uh, Sith under Maul. I mean, you could tell a similar type of story have it be about descendants of Luke uh, Han and them and stuff but but again that gets into that you know they're, they're not doing that so what we have no I don't think we could you couldn't tell a story of this level I think you have this the building blocks were there if they would have chose to do something like that I think they could have seeded that into rebels and you know done that with some of the books and stuff I think that that was very easily a possibility uh, when you think about what they did with the new jedi order it wouldn't be hard for story group to sit down with a core group of writers on the books and the comics and have them hash out a a series like this Uh, but what we have right now It's tough to say you could make that work because right now we really don't have a descendant of Skywalker aside from Kylo Ren. Kylo Ren is your only blood relation of that next generation of Star Wars characters. And right now he's not the type of character I would want. I mean, I was going to mention how, you know, in this series, Kate is very whiny, but it plays to a way that I appreciate. It feels very realistic. He's very unsure, and I keep in mind that this is a guy who grew up without his parents. You know, he had his dad for only so long, and then he was thrust on his own with a bunch of pirates. I mean, you know, he is not going to be the best role model. You know, he's not going to be your shining example, and he's going to be screwing up left and right, and he's trying to do what he thinks is right, but it always backfires, and he is in that, he's in that it's been backfiring, I'm, I'm up to here, you know, with that, my, my eye level is, you know, my, I'm putting my hand above my eye because I'm I'm just so up to here with your stuff. And that's where he's at with making decisions and having them basically sith slap him in the face you know he makes a choice it backfires horribly he makes another choice it backfires horribly he makes another choice and again it backfires horribly but he's just trying to do what's right uh so so there's that angle of like you know i don't see kylo like i'm i'm forgiving of kate i see it as very realistic whereas kylo i just can't handle him right now like i wanted to love that character so much and what we got in canon changed the fundamentals of what i thought he was going to be and i just don't know if that character can be redeemed whereas with Cade all the way through this I felt like all he needed was the right break with Kylo I don't see that I don't see him getting like hey Chewie just decides to pull him under his arm instead of shooting with a bowcaster this week and everything's going to be okay like I just don't see that with Cade though you know with Bantha the Rock I, there is a character interaction that I really dug you know when he sees Cade going towards the darkness and stuff and, and the way he basically he has to make a tough choice you know he's like you're messing up you're, you're doing things for the worst way yeah, you're healing, but your healing is taking you to a dark place. Like he asks, uh, Shado, he's like, how long has his eyes been doing that? And he's like, every time he does the healing thing, you know, and that immediately like was ding, 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 ding. Hawks, like you got to stop. You're not helping. You're done. You're done helping. There is no more help coming from you, Bert. You're, you're done. It's over, Kit. You're done. We're not doing it. Like, and that was something I can appreciate, you know, especially from being an adult and having to make those tough stands and stuff like that, like and that's something that, that John seeds into his story, he does a very good job and I'm with you in that regard, like, if you want a satisfactory Legends comic, this is definitely one to grab, granted it does pull on a lot of things, but this is a story that I get a kick out of coming back to. So you could read it. Like, I remember reading Heir to the Empire and being completely confused my first three reads through that book. I didn't understand, you know, the the physics, the way the hyperspace worked, what a hydrospanner was. I kind of knew because of the films, but there was a lot of terminology that went over my head and I just kind of had to plunge right through and go through it and finish that book, get in another book, kind of figure, oh, they're referencing stuff from that other book. And then when I went back after reading a few more books, I got a lot more out of it. And this is one of those series. You'll get a hell of a lot more out of it once you've read earlier series, you get some stuff about Kenobi, you get some stuff about Asherard Hett during the Clone Wars, and then you come back to this, and you know who Kakruk is, and you're like, oh my god!
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances.
1: Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of All Ages, because here we go, on another adventure...
0: Beyond the Films. So we start with Fight Another Day. The last time we saw the planet Dak, a.k.a. Mon Calamari, a.k.a. Mon Gala, was when basically Krait said, you know what, one of your leaders just helped the Galactic Alliance remnant under Gar Stasi steal the Imperius back in Indomitable. So you know what, back in Wrath of the Dragon, we're going to make an example of you. And he ordered basically 10% of the planet's Monkala population to be killed, and then the other 90% put into basically labor camps, concentration camps essentially, for the Monkalamari. It's the closest thing to a Holocaust that we've seen outside of a whole planet being destroyed. Where in this case we get to sort of see the after effects of it because the people are still, except for that 10%, living, they're just living in horrible, deplorable conditions. And we recently saw the character of of Trace Sind, back in uh, Wrath of the Dragon, there on the planet, assisting the Mancala and choosing to stay behind. So this picks up with where that story left off with events happening actually during the events of Vector. Basically, Darth Azard, who is a Quarren Sith Lord, a member of the One Sith, also from Wrath of the Dragon, and scientist Vol Ison, also a Sith but not a Sith Lord, no tattoos and whatnot, are basically the ones in charge of this planet and using Sith creations and Sith diseases and all these kinds of things to try to basically do the wiping out of the 10% and to keep the Mon Calamari under control. And the Mon Calamari Rangers under Tanquar and Trey Sin, this Imperial Knight, not a Jedi, but an Imperial Knight, are trying to lead the fight to save as many people as they can. Uh, as this story progresses, there's a lot of debate over what is the best course of action, whether or not it's even possible to win in this situation, or if it's just a matter of buying time, until eventually Vol Eisen and Darth Azard release basically the Kraken at them, a Leviathan from the Hundred-Year Darkness, a major you know, schism event between the light side and dark side in Legends Continuity. And our heroes have to wind up facing off against it, leading to one major member of the team, uh, Sean Mai, doing essentially a suicide attack to try to take it out, or to take out the command module to be able to take it out. And by the time it's over, we've had a few conversations between Sind and his Emperor— Rowan Fell, the deposed emperor who's now ruling from Bastion, was basically ordering him back into the fray. You know, we need you here to be part of the fight, not there. And basically, Tracen has found ways to stay behind and keep helping, sort of disobeying the order, but finding a way to try to justify it in doing so, so that he can help the Mon Calamari out. But certainly, the struggles of the Mon Calamari by the end of this arc are far from over. Yeah,
1: there's some great interactions. I like the fact that we see, you know, the loyalty angle, uh, you know, being loyal to the throne and where it gets you. And there's some great moments, you know, the chastising that Sind gives to the the Mon Cal. He's like, you didn't drive it away, Tanko. I did, and the reason we were shadowing it in the first place was to capture it. It would have provided a a mobile fortress you rangers badly need. Instead of sticking to the plan, you launched an attack prematurely. What would you have us do, Trishite? Our people were being killed. We were just supposed to ignore that? You must prioritize, Tankar. That fortress will be repaired and it will come back, looking for these refugees and for you. Your leaders did what they could before the massacre, creating places like this secretly. They built fighters like the Karakana and trained rangers like yourself. The massacre cut that short. This is not about victory. Don't fool yourselves. There will be no victory. You don't have the means to drive the Sith and their Imperials off the planet. You're fighting for time waiting until the rest of the galaxy puts together the muscle to drive the enemy away and allow you to live. And it really, you know, these interactions set up the desperateness of it all, not just for the Mon Calamari, but also for the Imperials, because, you know, Sin had to kill a friend who was loyal to the throne. The only real difference was that he chose the wrong emperor and that got him killed. And, and there's another great interaction there where he's kind of reflecting on that. And it's the Mon Calamari that that's the opposite. He's like, and for your sake, I am taking the lives of my people. On that accolade was a chief mechanic, a being who had once served under command, and I killed him. His crimes? Obedience and loyalty. No, Master Schneid. If he was on that accolade, his crime was genocide. He helped keep that machine running, and that machine's purpose was the death of my people. I shed no tears for him. He was my enemy. He made his choice, as have you. And this is one of the things that for me, like this is the main theme as it runs out throughout the series that is really cool because, you know, we we watch the Empire build up. And, and another comment we get too is how he talks about how, you know, he's been they've been loyal to the throne going all the way back to the original Emperor Jagged Fell. And so that's the angle that that's really exciting for me because I have been waiting for that to come back from this series you know, when we see Jag take his place as the Emperor, which of course we had to step up to that in one of the last book series and then Crucible kind of took and and had him walk a different direction. Clearly they were hoping in Sword of the Jedi to bring that back around because in the books the last we have is Jag basically walking away. He's like, I'm not going to do any of this kind of thing. Uh, So, you know, that's gone, but you have this, the idea of are you loyal to the throne on Coruscant because it has to be there in the center of the galaxy or are you loyal to the throne wherever it be, which is interesting because canon has now thrown away the concept of the throne world always being Coruscant. So, you know, you have that major difference now in canon from Legends. Legends always kept the Coruscant as the key major place, except for during certain major times of war. Uh, so that's that's another angle at play here that's that's intriguing to me.
0: Yeah, I was actually going to quote that same thing you quoted about, you know, they're trying to buy time. It's It definitely feels like a desperate situation. I like the fact that we're getting to know Trace Sind at this point. He's one of these characters where it's kind of like they need separate new characters in each individual situation for us to know, for them to really matter to us. The fact that we met this character before, even if only briefly, allows us to get at least a little bit of a connection to this story as it's happening. Plus the fact that, of course, of all the planets to do this to, to do it to Dak, slash Moncala, slash Mon Calamari, whatever you want to call it, that's huge. I mean, this is in some ways worse, I would say, because it is the fact that it's essentially an ongoing slow genocide rather than sort of a blink all at once and everyone's dead type of thing. I would say this is kind of a worse fate than what happened to Alderaan in A New Hope, what happens to Hosni Prime in The Force Awakens. I would even say that this probably is the Legacy Era's version of for Star Trek in the Prime timeline having Romulus completely wiped out and in the Kelvin timeline having Vulcan wiped out. This is such a prominent species in Star Wars storytelling. To, to see this happen to them is huge. I think with Alderaan, the issue was that but when that happened in the film, we had never really known anything about Alderaan back in 77. And even years later, we had gotten some stories connected to Alderaan, but it wasn't really until the prequels and the Clone Wars were getting to know Bale and whatnot that we really started to feel it more. Uh, by the time we met Leia, Alderaan was about to be destroyed anyway. So it was kind of like we could know it through her, but not as much. Whereas in this case, it feels like the impact is heavier because again, it's ongoing struggles. Uh, it definitely mirrors that we've seen or Holocaust that we've seen, ethnic cleansing we've seen in the real world. And it's this culture that is so seeped in Star Wars Legends that, you know, I would say it's probably one of the top five most recognizable, most impactful species that we see in the Legends continuity. And Krait is doing this to them. I also do like that whole question that you brought up of sort of, you know, who do you serve? Are you loyal to the throne? Are you loyal to a particular person? And to me, again, sort of being the political guy, I like that because it's sort of a rule of law question, right? It's the idea that, I mean, these days, you know, there's the, there's the argument of, well, you can't criticize this particular politician because that's the president, whether we're talking about Bush, Clinton, Obama, whoever, or you can't criticize this person because they might be the president. And it's sort of this, well, you can respect the office and not necessarily respect the individual or like the individual, but those two are sort of separate things. One's an institution that will continue long after this person is gone, whereas the other is a person who's only there for a short time who's going to have all those personal foibles that a human being is going to have, or in this case, a sentient is going to have. Um, and I find it interesting that here, they take an opposite perspective to what you would expect. The American tradition, which is the society from which these writers are coming, from this this writer and, and artist team is coming. The American tradition has tended to be rule of law. We are, At least, you know, you could argue that that's fading, but the argument being that it's rule of law, it's about we are a nation of laws not of men. That no one is above the law, barring if you're your last name starts with a C and ends with Linton. But essentially this idea that it doesn't matter who the president is, even a president can be brought down if they've committed crimes. Uh, Even a, a Supreme Court justice could and so on and so on. That it's about the system and it's about the structure set up by the Founding Fathers, not necessarily about the individual person sitting in that seat, sitting in the position, in the Oval Office, in Congress, whatever. Whereas this takes the opposite view, essentially. Because the Sith are the ones who have the throne. And we're asking... Trace sinned as an audience, and as Rowan Fell is, to be loyal to the rightful emperor who is a. Person based on a line of succession, not to be loyal necessarily to that political system. Again, it's, it's a very diametrically opposite perspective than what we are used to. But I find that fascinating. I mean, I, a lot of my takes on politics tend to go back to rule of law. Like people ask me, you know, well, you know, your view on abortion. And my argument is always you need to find a way within the system to find a way to change it if you're going to try to get rid of it. Because right now, by rule of law, by Supreme Court decision, thanks to the Roe v. Wade decision, it is legal. It is constitutional. If you want to change it, you must change that aspect of the system to do it because we are a nation of laws, not men, and so on and so on. So, I don't know, to me, that's a that's the most fascinating aspect of this. And the rest of the story just sort of served as a frame to push that issue forward. And it's, it's interesting that they take such an opposite view to what you would think of as American norm, that it's the system, not the person. Here, it's the person, not the position.
1: Yeah. And it continues on, too. I mean, and we'll touch on it as we get deeper in, but the loyalty we see for from- Cade, loyalty to love and loyalty to the light, Um, the loyalty, I mean, they could have called this loyalty and it would have worked in my mind. You know, another spot, too, is we see when Azard starts sending the troops to draw out the Mon Cal, there's a great moment where the one guy's like, everyone to the Kakarn, and Snide's like, wait, you can't fight this. If I'm right, this is a Leviathan, a Sith created creature. Those blister pods suck life energy from you. You go out there, you'll simply get yourselves killed. Are we supposed to just ignore the beast while it attacks our people? Yes, the reason the Sith are attacking them is to draw you out so they can kill you. Like, in the look of the art here, like, he is imploring with the guy, like, please don't make this choice. The Mon Cal don't have that many Ranger units. You can't afford to throw away your lives in a fight you can't win. The refugees, sadly, are expendable. You are not. So we simply sacrifice those who need us. Is that the Imperial way? When it's necessary for the greater good. Yes. And he turns away. And I mean, you can just see the look pained on his face. And the long kind of jabs at him. As your emperor pointed out, we are not Imperials. Your way is not our way. Wait let's make suicide our last option, shall we? So he decides that he's going to help him. And I like, you know, again, the aspect of, you know, the Moncow are looking at him like, what are you going to do? Are you going to leave us too? And like you said at the beginning, he decided to stay behind. And again, they play up that theme. And I really really come to enjoy this character. Like, I have enjoyed the Imperial Knights since most of them stepped onto the page. And this is another classic example of just, bam, here comes this new character and John knows how to create a character that you
0: immediately love. And the art just know how to make it come to life that brings us to issues 34 and 35, which is the story Storms, after which this trade paperback has been named. And you have a few things going on here. On the Sith side, Darth Weirlock, as you may recall, the end of Vector, basically, Lord Krait had been injured heavily in his battle on Had Abaddon. And when he was near death, it appeared that Darth Weirlock came in and finally killed him, which is apparently what Weirlock believes. We will see that's not necessarily true later. And he's put Krait into this stasis. Field, essentially, so that, in theory, he can heal, which is what he did for long periods of time of dormancy during the many, 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 many years since Asherah had first became crate, all the way up until now, as that Vong armor of his is slowly changing his body and leading towards his eventual death. So, Weirlock is now in charge, basically claiming that it's just normal, right? Krait is in stasis? I'm in charge. No problem. He does get a brief challenge, however, to that authority from Darth Strife. We we met Darth Strife back in Claws of the Dragon. He also appeared in Into the Core and then appeared in Vector. He emerges from his own healing and is questioning what's going on. And we get sort of an explanation of what the strategy is from Weirlock. About basically they're going to shore up Rule of the Galaxy for Crate while Crate is in stasis. So Strife is back into play. Weirlock is leading. For now, Crate is out of play, at least at the moment. The bulk of the story, though, focuses in on the crew of the Minok. They've left Had Abaddon at the end of Vector, and Aslan Ray has been grievously wounded. Uh, fried, basically. Force lightning and all. So, they're trying to make their way back to Kifex, so they can get back to the home of Bantha Rock, aka Nat Skywalker, where his wife, Drew, is a former Jedi healer. And if they can use her healing ability to save Aslan, that'll keep Cade from experiencing another loss. And this is really all about cade and his loss not necessarily the fate of aslan he's been keeping her alive through that strange force attuned ability to heal or destroy the same ability that crate wanted to have him use on crate himself back in vector so they make their way to kifex and when they arrive there's this question of does aslan actually want to be saved and cade gives a non-answer she's told cade just let me go let me die. Let me go into the force. And he's basically saying, no, he won't allow that to happen. And when asked, did Aslan tell you she wants to be healed? Does she want to live? Cade's answer is nobody wants to die, which is taken as she wants to live, which is Absolutely the opposite of her wishes. Uh, So we essentially get to see him dealing with the aftermath of what happened to her, being very concerned about her. There's arguments back and forth between him and his uncle, Bantha, about essentially uh, what the next step should be and how close he's getting to the dark side. I mean, he's using the Sith eyes whenever he is actually trying to keep her alive in the first place. Until finally, she does wind up being saved, except she's saved in sort of a Vader type of way with this suit that constantly puts Bacta onto her body and keeps her immersed in it to keep her alive. She's essentially more machine now than woman. We also have moments in which Cade, trying to blow off steam, he and Jiraiya Sin go out, basically, to a bar, and on the way out of the bar, wind up getting attacked by a group of ruffians, and in the process, wind up embroiled with the local peacekeepers, who include Anna, the daughter of Bantha and Drew, um, someone for whom Jiraiya has very strong romantic feelings and attraction. It's just kind of a mess there, and Jiraiya winds up having to basically subdue her so that she can't arrest Cade and Jiraiya. It's just kind of a mess between the family uh, and and Cade's crew. Uh, Jiraiya even brings up the question, you know, we keep bringing Bantha trouble and hurt. Why we do that, Cade? And you get sort of the sense that things are just going wrong and continuing to go wrong. So as Aslan winds up meeting with Ganner Krieg and being accepted back into the Order of the Imperial Knights, Cade, Jiraiya, and Delia just hop aboard the Minoc and leave. They basically leave Kifex behind. And it seems as though basically Cade has decided, you know what, I tried to do good. It didn't turn out, so screw it. I'm just going to go do my own thing. The rest of the galaxy can kiss my butt and so on. Uh, And they leave for adventures unknown, at least until the next arc. So it's very much a turning point for Cade. He's no longer going after Crate. He just wants to say, screw it and go off on his own. There's a big sense of betrayal from Drew that he convinced them to save Aslan's life when she didn't want it. Now she's living like this, which essentially caused Drew to break some of the most fundamental rules about being a Jedi healer. It's kind of a mess. It's very much a dysfunctional story arc for the family of the Skywalkers.
1: Mm-hmm. And what's cool too is Drew is a Voss. So- so Quinlan's line has continued on. So in a sense, we have with Bantha and her the coming together of the Skywalker and the Voss lines. Uh, Grant, we don't know if there's any actual kids from those two that they're on. I think there's like maybe one that's
0: their own actual kid and the rest are all adopted. Yeah, I'm trying to remember exactly how that how that played. But yeah, it's, it's it's a family of adoptees for the most part or a family of like stepchildren. I'd have to look.
1: Yeah, there are two different things that I really, I thought would be interesting with you and I uh to talk about. And one is the interaction between Delilah Blue and Cade, when Cade wakes up after uh, basically kind of falling asleep after all the chaos. And it's her point of view that really was surprising. She said, Cade, you're going to kill yourself. You burn out. You don't even have fumes left. You probably think, just like everyone else, best if she dies, right? You stupa. You're such a moron sometimes. You still don't get it, do you? I'm a Zeltron. I can feel the bond between you two coming off in waves. Cade, I'm okay with that. Ray brings out a side of you you don't show to anyone else in the galaxy. Like someone you could have been. And I like the idea. He's like, you're jealous, you know? She's like, no such word in Zeltan, Patisa. Says like, oh, we don't feel jealousy, Cade. Since I met you, you've been my captain, my friend, and my Mooney. If you ever touch that Sith witch again, I'll rip her eyes out with a hydraspan. Talon's playing evil, but Aslan, well, Aslan's okay. And I like the fact that, you know, she's a woman. She's got the heart for him in a sense. And yet she is totally okay with this other girl coming in because she recognizes that the other girl is good for him. She loves him enough and her species is detached enough from emotion that she is okay and recognizes that Aslan is a good fit for Cade and if Cade is with her it will make Cade better and therefore if Cade's better he'll be better for her I I, I just like that dynamic there it was an interesting way to go with it because it wasn't something you naturally think about and then the other one is something that Hawk says to Drew uh, when they're talking about the suit and she goes you know how I feel about this project a suit like that like Vader's it's the very image of evil wasn't the suit made Vader evil it was the man inside the suit the suit's just tech Not good or bad. And while he has a point... I stop and I think about that and he's also wrong. <laughs> that suit did solidify the evil of Vader. That suit did make Anakin more evil. That suit tortured the living crap out of Anakin and helped fuel his hatred and his darkness. That suit was the embodiment of evil. Just like Drew says, and as we will eventually see, like, you know, she's trapped in the suit just like Vader was. There is going to be resentment. Resentment is anger. You know, we know the path there. It's all leading to the dark side. And I kind of think Bantha's in a little denial here because Cade asked Bantha to promise him to save her when all that was going down about, yeah, nobody wants to die. Promise me. And he made a promise. And Bantha's now pulling the uncle thing of, well, my nephew's had everything taken from him. He's had promises that have never been kept, and I'm going to keep this one. And he's making a bad choice out of the wrong reason. Like, he's letting his heart make a poor choice in this regard. I mean, you know, it, it's basically over and over again saying, she's ready to go. You know, Aslan's ready to move on. She is not supposed to be here. Her being around is unnatural. It is of the dark side, and
0: Bantha's playing into it. Yeah, he's an interesting contradiction. And I think, I mean, that's why I really enjoy about the character. I mean, I've said before, you know, when my wife and I have a child, if it's a boy, the child will be named Cade. Love this character. Probably my favorite character within Legends. But he's a conflicted character. He is a deeply, deeply flawed character. Whether we're talking about the drug use, whether we're talking about his anger, his ability to sort of play both sides against the middle and so forth. He's a messed up guy. And it's interesting that at the same time that we were getting stories around the same time in the prequel era, or the same publishing era, we were getting all these stories that focused on sort of the Jedi and attachment. And there this big push of, you know, attachment is forbidden because attachment leads to fear of loss, which leads to the dark side, and so on. It's funny that for Cade, it's sort of a double-edged sword. Because for Cade, yes, attachment leads him to some horrific stuff, like trying to protect his crew against Crate, trying to protect Aslan here and keep her alive, and trying to protect other people around him by going after Crate directly to end the threat. Not so much for the galaxy's sake, but his own. Just like he's saving Aslan here for him, not for her. While it's causing him to do all these things like that, it's his attachment to his crew and to Aslan that bring out the best in him. So he's someone who, in a sense, attachment will either redeem or destroy him, one or the other. And he's constantly vacillating back and forth, going deeper and deeper, it seems, every time he delves toward the darker side of that, whereas redemption seems to be uh, something that's quite a ways down the road if he's ever going to be able to attain it. He's a character who really has a heavy story arc of needing to dig himself back out. It's almost as if, you know, we would never got the prequels, or we never got at least up through Revenge of the Sith or or the middle of Revenge of the Sith and we had met Vader and immediately knew how tortured he was where we really didn't know that when a new hope came. We really didn't know that until we started to get at least a little bit of background on him and sort of saw him as a tragic character from the get-go rooting for him to somehow pull himself out of it but seeing all these horrible things he winds up doing uh, in the meantime. Thankfully, Cade never becomes the next Vader. I mean, he came close back in Claws of the Dragon. So we have a character here that is continuing to grow, and we have about another 14 regular issues of the series, I guess it is, plus the War series, to see whether or not he's going to be able to pull himself back out of this. At this point, it seems like he's sort of hitting a reset button, but they're continuing all these other ongoing storylines. That I think is why this feels more to me like it's a continuation, even after this issue, than the way KOTOR was, where it sort of felt like it hit the reset button in a lot of ways after Vindication.
1: See, and I feel like Cade's trying to hit the reset right now, and he's going back to the only thing he knows, which is the life of a pirate, you know? I mean, he's like, come on, Dry, we're going to go down, we're going to raise hell
0: down at the local katina. And then he goes down and botches it horribly. Very Han Solo-esque. You see Han doing the same thing. Well, heck, Han sort of does the same thing whenever he winds up going back to things after the death of Chewbacca in Legends. Yeah. Uh, you gotta wonder where he winds up in canon when it comes to what happens after everything happens when Ben turns into Kylo Ren and the Academy gets destroyed and all that kind of stuff. The rift that forms between him and Leia does he wind up doing kind of the same thing. He says he goes back to what he did best, mm-hmm. but it, there's a part of me that wonders kind of, he says that he went back to what he did best after that, but it's weird in that now in canon, he. I mean, we're kind of getting off the topic, I guess, but it's like he's going from being a racing pilot to being a smuggler again, as opposed to it being like I was by Leia's side constantly and then I became a smuggler again, because he seems like he was kind of far away a lot of the time, but that I guess is neither here nor there on that one. So
1: when the the showdown goes down and Jiraiya has to kind of put himself between Cade and Cade's cousin, uh, that was a fun moment and, and he uses the Vong life to put her down so they can kind of escape, but then it goes to Bastion, and we go to a Roan Fell's private quarters, and he's getting some inside sources from the one Sith. There is someone in a shroud in a hologram. We don't see their face or anything, but they are giving him some information. I can't remember. Did we ever find out who this source was, or did it always stay vague?
0: I honestly don't recall. I'm reading these years later, almost like reading them for the first time. I remember a lot of the broad strokes, but that specific identity, I don't recall. I remember seeing the scene when I was rereading it this week and going, huh, I'd forgotten about that character. It's, it's, it's Ahsoka, right? (laughs) That could be it. Uh, And then,
1: you know, the great interaction between Aslan and Cade. Cade, Aslan, you're alive. This is life Aslan, damn, and she grabs him by the throat and lifts him. Oh, well, it looks like she lifts him off the ground. Yes, Cade, damn you. I accepted the will of the Force. I accepted my death. Why couldn't you? I couldn't lose you. I, I love you. And she chucks him against the wall with a Force push or of some sort because her fist has got a glowing ball. You don't love anyone. You saved me because you're needy and selfish. Which she's not exactly wrong. Hey, I, I saved your life. Give you a fighting chance. Better deals than most of the get in this forsaken galaxy. That that suit just buys you time. I got power. Drew and Bantha have skill. We could, we could try to save you and make you better. I'm not going to get better. The only reason I'm even alive is that this thing keeps pumping back around me. It breathes for me. Sometimes it still feels like I'm burning from the inside. I'm trapped inside this armor, Cade. Do you understand what that means? I'll never feel a cool breeze on my face. Or... Your touch on my skin. Sometimes I can't even feel anything at all. I'd rather be dead. And then, of course, Delilah's right behind her. You got a problem with living? I can fix that. (laughs) And she's got the blaster up to her head. And, of course, you know, this all leads to the moment where Bantha has to kick Kate out. He's like, you've got to go. you got to get out of here. And the last thing you know, that I wanted to touch on here is that we see back on Crifix, and we go back to the Voss family uh, with chef Zahara. There's someone there and she lets in someone and you see master Ray and you see a hand and you see Ray and she looks up and she's got a tear running down her eye and it's Ganner, one of the Imperial Knights who loves Ray. And he goes, I've come to take you home Aslan. And that was the other aspect of loyalty that I wanted to touch on too is Aslan herself. You know, there's the loyalty to Cade, loyalty to the Jedi order. And loyal to the Imperial Knights. And we don't really see it from her point of view, but we see it from those around her who are trying to do what's best for her out of loyalty to her, being loyal to them. Uh, she was always loyal. And how everyone is repaying that loyalty is different from each one. Like, you know, Shado and them with the Jedi, they were just they would just let her go and die. Cade, he's not about to do that. He's gonna do everything in his power to keep her alive and ganner is going to bring her home and try to heal her spiritually uh and, and that was just something that I, I i really appreciated in the story i just wanted to touch on that before we move into renegades
0: i do like also that i mean jirai is even calling this out it's not just Aslan is calling out it's easy for Aslan to be the one saying you did this for you not me but even jirai is calling it out right because he asks, i i, I use that quote earlier about we keep bringing bantha trouble and hurt why we do that cade and his answer is because i'm an idiot Every time, every carking time, I try to do what's right, I get kicked in the teeth. Kill Creighton, and save the galaxy? Aslan was almost killed. Save Aslan's life? She hates me for it. I'm as stupid as the Jedi. I know how the galaxy works, but I tell myself, this time it'll be different. I never learn. And Gerai just flat out says, don't play me, Patissa. You don't give a damn about the galaxy. You went after Creighton because he was after you. Aslan, you weren't doing all that for nobody but you. And this is what causes him to finally say, you know, you think so, Jiraiya? Nobody's motives are unmixed except maybe a Sith. Maybe Rav had it right. Don't care about nobody but yourself. No hurt that way. To hell with the galaxy. And that's when he's essentially choosing to walk away. But, I mean, even Jiraiya, who's been with him all this time and has been sort of a staunchest ally, uh, except maybe Delia, is basically there saying, dude, you're a selfish punk." <laughs> deal with it and maybe you can move on because everything he has done has had some selfish motivation with a few I'll say everything every major thing but you can even argue back whenever he finally in the first arc and broken took up the lightsaber and was willing to essentially try to protect Marisia. I believe it was even then it was because he was sick of it and it was his emotions and he wanted it to end because he was tired of this crap as opposed to it being necessarily a fully selfless thing for him to do very much the opposite of if you look at Rebels with Kanan and his moment of taking up the lightsaber again to let everyone in on the secret, so to speak, where it's about saving the Wookiees and the crew. Kate is very much a darker character.
1: Yeah, one last thing I want to touch on before we get out of this, we've already jumped away from the arc, was back when we were on deck and we saw the undersea ATAT. Okay. I remember thinking that was cool when I first saw it. And then I started thinking about it more and I'm like, why would you why would you outfit an ATAT to go underwater? Why not just use a ship? Like it's like one of those things just came to me out of nowhere. I
0: was like, it was a great little idea. Oh, hey, look what we can do with an ATH, But I'm like, practicality wise, it just doesn't work. It's like the designer had a dog or some kind of pet. Uh, we'll call it a neck. There you go, a neck battle dog that wound up having to get all four of its limbs amputated. And he's like, I got an idea. <laughs> doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, yes, that does bring us to Renegade, not the Lorenzo Lamas television series from the back in the day. And yes, I just dated myself again. And this one jumps to an entirely different group. Of characters. This one is focused on the fact that there is a slowly growing, very tenuous alliance happening now, which being Garstazi, who's the leader of the Galactic Alliance Remnant Fleet that didn't surrender, and Rowan Fell, the Emperor in exile, so to speak, and his Imperial faction based out of Bastion, and the Jedi based out of their hidden temple, though the Jedi don't really play into this situation much at all. And it's sort of the time to test that alliance and see if they together can stand up against the might of the Sith or the one Sith in their particular Imperial faction. It's hard to say Empire in this case because there are two different empires essentially going at the same time. But we see a situation over the planet Raltir where Garstasi's fleet comes in and attacks a Sith Imperial fleet that is led by Admiral Petro Kelsen. Yeah, Kelsen. It's how you say it. K-E-L-S-A-N. And in carrying out the attack, they need help, of course. And the second battle group to jump into the fray, as planned, is a the so-called Bastion Second. I, I guess eight. they call it the Loyalist Fleet. I guess is though is the way they're referring to this faction now, Loyalist. Um, but Rowan Fell's side, the Bastion Fleet, jumps in. Led by Admiral Edward Fennel, and you know Edward is going to be a bit of a jerk because they don't spell it Edward, right? It's this is Edward. Oh, Star Wars doesn't usually see an Edward. Why are they making him Edward? It just sounds like he should be kind of a pretentious guy. Uh, sorry to any Edwards out there. I, I'm sure you're lovely people, but this guy is a douche.
1: Yeah. You know, if savage
0: oppressed becomes savage oppressed, this is how you say Edward. <laughs> <laughs> Edward. And essentially, as they are bearing down, you have two very different ways of doing battle because Kelsey is ready to basically back down, one of his own captains, uh, Vaklan Tor, is not willing to back down. He would much rather see the ship destroyed and thinks that all the other Sith Imperial loyal ships should be willing to see their ships destroyed uh, rather than falling into the hands of Rohenfell's or Garstasi's faction because then they could be used against it, very much like the Imperius that was captured. So you see the, the Sith Imperials sort of change their mind about whether or not they're going to surrender. The ships are being ordered to be scuttled, and you have escape pods being launched from them, and Edward decides that his fell loyal faction is going to destroy those escape pods, basically kill the enemy so they can't come back and fight another day. If you just let them go, then they will return turn. Um, and more on that whenever we get into the actual discussion piece rather than the summary. And it turns out that it's Stasi and his forces that actually stand between the two Imperial sides to make sure that those escape pods are able to get to safety, and even to make sure that the ships essentially get scuttled. They're willing to act more on honor on Garstasi's behalf, and Joran his second-in-command, rather than just blindly following this idea of, you know, you must wipe out your enemy completely. And in the end, it turns out that it was, at least to some extent, a test by Rowan Fell, who doesn't necessarily see Garstazi as an equal until Stasi sort of puts him in his place like, look, you know, I'm the leader of the Galactic Alliance now. That makes me a head of state. That does make us equal, so we're going to work on these equal terms. And it leaves this question essentially of who's going to be more dangerous to the Galactic Alliance and the galaxy, their friends or their enemies? Because Rowan Fell is certainly less disciplined of an individual, at least in terms of honor, or at least what we think of as honorable conduct, uh, than Garstazi is, and of course the Sith, Well, they're a whole league of dishonorable unto themselves. So we have an interesting tale here that just solidifies that alliance, shows us that alliance in action, and gives us more about loyalty and honor. I I think you're right that something like loyalty would have been a great title for this arc rather than simply calling it Storms based on the one arc inside it. I know that they they were always naming them after one of the stories or one of the arcs in the trade paperback, but loyalty would have been a fantastically appropriate name.
1: Well, yeah, because this one, it's all about Gar's loyalty to life. I mean, when you see him turn around and is willing to defend Sith Empire ships... Because it's the right thing to do for life's sake. Uh, You know, and and there's also great interaction, and you touched on it. Gar turns to Bay. Remind me why I shouldn't shove a barrage up his arrogant exhaust port, Captain Bay. Because it would be counterproductive to a new alliance with his master. Although, I wonder why they sent such a Durstack grub on our first joint mission. As I said before, this is a test. And Fell is testing me. If I can deal with Fennel, then I probably can deal with any of his officers. So let's deal. And that's what I really dig about Garstazi is he is a take-no-B.S. kind of guy. And, and you did, you touched on the, the other part was when uh, he was talking to the uh, Emperor Fell himself. Your Imperial Majesty, Admiral Stasi. Well, this didn't go quite as planned, did it? Neither you nor I gained any ships. On the other hand, the Sith lost a fleet, and they'll have to replace it, stretching them a bit thinner. We might have had the ships intact if Fennel hadn't overplayed his hand. I trust, your majesty, that we are now past the testing phase of our relationship. And Fell's like, looking down at him, I am the Emperor, sir. You will be mindful of how you speak. We are not equals." I must disagree, Your Majesty, until such time as a new government can be elected. I am the Galactic Alliance, as a head of state that does make us equals. Any joint operations we may undertake will start with that premise. Are we agreed? And fell immediately recrinsed. Of course, I apologize for Fennell. He obviously did not understand the situation I, as I might have liked. It is interesting to note, you have a taste for power, Admiral Stasi. Less than you might think, Your Majesty. I am only what necessity has forced me to be. Aren't we all? And it's interesting for me because like, Felt runs the gauntlet himself of being an arrogant prick at times where you're like, what the hell is up with this guy? And... When you think about, you know, where his line came from when jagged fell and Jaina Solo, you know, and what they were trying to establish and the precedence of, you know, the Imperial Knights are loyal to their emperor to the point that if their emperor goes to the dark side, they're obligated to end his life. Like, I had always wanted to see how that started. Like, this set up a great story for Jag and Jaina. and in the heart of what this empire was to be because you know when when you're reading this you really have no idea you're like is this like you know the first order like you really you're coming at it from that angle like are these guys bad guys good guys I know they were helping you know with the Vong and stuff but that really wasn't quite this empire so you're still quizzing them you're still you know qualifying them trying to find out where they, they fall into the scale of things are they really bad are they really good and Fell does things that make you question and even Ganner points out you know when they were talking about the Myr Talisman of that thing was evil, you know, and and there's a great line. Oh man, I, I wish I knew which issue it was to find it, but they're talking about, is there not any weapon that's just too evil to use against the Sith? And that's a great question that they posted themselves, but they don't answer it. It's just more left-hanging for the readers to ponder. And I think the reality there is, yeah, I think, you know, and Gar is the one that talks about it when he talks about the loss of life, that if we make that change, we've lost everything. We've lost who we are. And I think Fell is, he's on that line. He is willing to lose himself and luckily he hasn't made that step. He's got people there that are kind of pointing out, hey, don't do it, but he's not willing to listen to him. Like, he could easily make that plunge
0: and become a bad guy right now. Yeah, there's a lot of, again, interesting political overtones to this, or undertones, whichever the term is that's uh, correct in this situation. I'll say that I had an amusing moment when reading this where Garstasi, you know, as you quoted, says, you know, I am the Galactic Alliance because there's not an elected government. I couldn't help but hear, I am the Senate. Right? Um, that, well, there is kind of a taste for power there. I do like the fact that, you know, Fells seemed like he's just kind of testing the waters, right? You know, you know, we're not equals. Oh, he stood up to me. All right, sweet. You know, he's got like a smirk on his face as he then responds to that, like, my apologies, understood, you know? It's interesting that we get to the end and he asks the question, uh, Bay asked the question, you know, so we're we all friends again. It's like, oh, friends, no, allies, yes. And I think that's something that a lot of times gets, uh, gets lost in the conversation. There's that whole debate over, you know, is the phrase true? true, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, Sometimes the enemy of my enemy is just my enemy. But I think it may be more appropriate to say, you know, is the enemy of my enemy my friend? Not necessarily, but maybe an ally. That ally and friend doesn't have to be the same thing. You don't have to necessarily like them to be able to work with them. And you need to make sure that you keep in mind that that may be a temporary alliance. I mean, you think about Oh, hell. I mean, you know, well, pick a situation that we found ourselves in. I would most recently say you know, with the situation with, say, uh, when Iraq fought Iran and we backed Saddam Hussein and then wound up going to war against Hussein or when the Afghani forces – the Afghani essentially – Terrorists. They called themselves freedom fighters at the time, and we called them that at the time, like the Mujahideen were standing up, including Osama bin Laden, against the Soviet Union, and we backed them up and supported their side, only to wind up having them eventually, with al-Qaeda, strike back at us, with Osama bin Laden leading that. Sort of one of those, you know, the enemy of my enemy may be my friend, but not usually. Instead, usually, the enemy of my enemy is my temporary ally at best, which is a very different thing. I also really like this question... And I think it's sort of with everything else that's going on in the issue, it becomes a story point that is important, but then kind of fades into the background and isn't usually a point of discussion, I don't think. Uh, And that's that question of, well, what do you do with defeated enemies? Um, You think about things like the American Revolution, right? We win. There's no way we can go after all the remaining redcoats, but they honor bound essentially. They just, for the most part, pack up and go, a handful of them, maybe even a lot of them, we wind up seeing again later in combat by a matter of a few decades, or at least maybe their children uh, in the War of 1812. We think about what we did at the end of World War I. Uh, in the end of World War One, basically the world punished the crap out of Germany. We even blamed Germany for starting the war even though it was Gavrilo Princip assassinating Archduke Ferdinand which was in Sarajevo uh, which is not in Germany either, and the terrorists were from serbia or or at least hid out in serbia so it's kind of this. so germany was at fault for this oh because they were the ones who were very militarized and oh yeah they're the ones with enough money to pay some of the reparations so we're going to destroy their economy and blame them for starting the war when actually it's not so much that they did in fact the side we took wound up being the side of the terrorist who started everything in world war one world war one is just an absolute cluster kark. I guess you could say. But our way of dealing with Germany essentially sets the stage for the rise of Hitler. You don't get a World War II if you don't end World War One with the Treaty of Versailles and the mess that it was. So there's, there's a level at which you sort of say, well, if you, if you are going to go into and punish them, aren't you going to create a, a desire for revenge? Aren't you possibly creating your next battle? And we sort of have taken a different approach as the U.S. ever really since the end of World War II, where we essentially try to rebuild the defeated side. Like, we defeat Japan with two atomic bombs. I right? talk about, you know, no weapon that's too horrible to use. We use two nuclear weapons against Japan, and then what do we do at the end of the war? We democratize, demilitarize, and rebuild Japan, trying to make their society more like ours. We even give them a constitution based on ours to use. And in doing so, they they become one of our closest economic and political allies. And that avoids another war with them, not grinding them into dust, changing them into an ally and essentially we've tried to do rebuilding in places like iraq iraq and afghanistan it's just that that place that area is still a massive mess and any progress we've made is kind of backslid in many cases but america kind of took a different approach to try to deal with defeated enemies to stop other wars from happening on the other hand we capture terrorists we stick them in gitmo eventually we release them from gitmo a fairly large percentage wind up right back on the battlefield against us statistically i forget exactly Exactly what the number was, but it was kind of a ridiculous number the last time I saw it. So there is something to be said for the idea that if you kill an enemy, it can't come back and bite you again. But are you perhaps creating the stage for the next enemy to come or a cycle of vengeance That is just going to continue forward. In this case, I think that Stasi certainly made the honorable move. And I'd like to think that's what an American military commander would do or any honorable military commander would do. But there is some truth to Fennel's point here that they could come back and bite you if you don't make sure those enemies are dead. Because they'll remember you as the enemy who defeated their ship, not the person who spared their escape pods. True
1: that. You know, and I remember, and I found the spot I wanted to talk about, it was in 35 at the beginning when they're on Bastion. I remember when I read that part thinking, you know, what if all this happens, Krayt dies, and it all led Emperor Fell to the point where he goes mad, and then the Jedi and the Imperial Knights have to take him out, and the Empire also collapsed. Like, I was wondering if they were going to clean the slate and wipe out the Empire by the time the story was all done, and this interaction was really what got me so worried. It's Fell talking to Draco and uh, Ganner, and he goes, that's your report, Master Draco. You think Darth Krayt might be dead? And if he isn't, you've allowed a weapon that could potentially stop him to be destroyed. Ganner speaks up. Sire, you don't understand how malignant a thing the mere talisman was. We saw it used against men who once served you. It turned them into monstrosities. Monstrosities who would have obeyed my command, Master Krieg, Unlike those traitors now serving the usurper. Is there any weapon too terrible to use against the Sith? And then, of course, he tells them, you know, to go off on their missions. But yeah, that was that moment where I was just like, man, oh, dude, he is ready to he is he's will at this point. He is there. Like, I'm I'm honestly surprised he didn't just commit to it and be like, you know what? Just bomb them all. Let's start sending in some bad things like he seems to be poised and ready to go. Kill 'em them all and let the
0: Force sort it
1: out. <laughs> yeah, I think that about uh, wraps this up. Let's uh, shift into covers real quick before we wrap it all away. So the first cover is 32, which also is the cover of the trade paperback. I uh, I love ones that capture the action. Encounter under the sea. And we've got Master Snide as he's coming against the Imperial Sea Troopers, the Sea Scouts or whatever they're called. Uh, total action pose. You know, they're all around him and he's in the midst of swinging down. The second one, uh, second one 33, it's simple. Uh, Similar. Leviathan, and it's him riding on one of the devil squids, uh, which is a really cool pose. It's kind of got a grittiness to it. Uh, but I like the fact that he's coming up against the Leviathan and the Leviathan's swimming towards him and stuff. Uh, we've got 34, which is Darth Azard, the vision of the one Sith, and it looks like he's coming out of Bacta, which is kind of basically what we see later. Uh, he comes out and does his little yell at everybody moment. 35, no armor for the soul, where we see Rey Aslan in her new armor from a really creepy uh, look with lightning around her with her arm out all Frankenstein's monster-like. Uh, this one is kind of like one of the more profound ones, especially with the no armor for the soul, because I really feel like that's what's going on, is like she's trapped and her soul has no armor, and it, it's a matter of how long can she withstand before her soul is consumed. Uh, And that's that's really cool. And of course, 36, Alliance in Peril! And you guys know me, I love space battles. This one, we've got the uh, Super Star Destroyer for the Alliance coming in. The Paleon-class Star Destroyer, uh, and it's got a bunch of the Rebel Fleets blazing around with it. Really cool action pose, absolutely absolutely love that one. I would say of these is probably between 36 itself and maybe 32 and 33. I just, I really like the capturing of the action there uh, as my favorites. Nothing's really a lackluster. You know, they all really are pretty good, pretty decent covers.
0: Yeah, I actually like all five of these. I think they're pretty nice. Um, I like the fact that they look, I mean, they're not photorealistic, but they go for a much finer type of detail, I guess, on some of these than what you saw with a lot of other Star Wars covers of this era, some of which just look kind of goofy. Definitely like the first two. I think the second one, it's a little trippy to see the Leviathan because of where its eyes are, just because the design of the Leviathan makes it look weird, but him riding basically a squid is interesting, or whatever the heck that thing is supposed to be. Strife coming out of the uh, the, the vat there, pretty cool. Uh, the Frankenstein-esque uh, Aslan Ray, pretty sweet. And the ship's definitely cool. The only two things that stand out to me that make me laugh with this, uh, one is I look at the cover of 34 with Strife, and I think... This is like the 2000s. Had this been just a little bit before, this could have been the cover of something like Fathom or Aspen. Any of those Michael Turner things where it was like, we're going to tell a story with a heroine, but on the covers, we're going to constantly have the heroine basically running around half naked or almost naked. You can see like one of those characters coming out of the tub on a cover for a Michael Turner comic. And that's basically what uh, Strife is doing here. He seems angry Perhaps because someone's telling him it's time to get out of the tub.
1: You know, it reminds me of wild things.
0: <laughs> and I'm just like, it's just like, come on, man. And then I'll tell you this about number 32, which is also the trade paperback cover, okay? So I like the cover. I look at the the different uh, Sith Imperial Sea Troopers. I think that is an awesome design. I love the armor that Trace Sind is wearing. And then you look and I'm like, oh my gosh, they got so much detail. You can even see his face and the wrinkles on his forehead <laughs> inside the helmet. And then there, I see the eyebrows. Yeah. These are super eyebrows. These are like uber brows. The counts Uh, brows. One, two eyebrows, pushy, ah, ah. Like, I can't I can't look at the cover now without my eye being immediately drawn to the eyebrows, which is kind of – it's almost like, oh, God, what is the guy's name? He was the dad or a dad, I think, on the OC, and then he played, like, a major police figure who is also uh, the father of one of the characters on, – uh, uh, one of the police officers in, in Law & Order SVU, who has, like, some of the craziest, biggest-ass bushy eyebrows I've ever seen in my life. It kind of feels like this is trace Sind as played by that dude. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think I know which actor you're talking about. There's that that one movie where the guy's in the coma. The guy's got those bushy, bushy eyebrows. Man, I was—they they look like caterpillars are like in there with him. Like he's he's panicking because the eye, the caterpillars are up by his eyes and he can't get them off because he's fighting the the empire right now.
0: <laughs> Peter Gallagher, I think, is the guy's name. Yeah, he's one of those guys. Just like I'm going to kill you with the little tiny hairs oh. on my brow.
1: Yeah, that is exactly who I was thinking of too. <laughs> It's awesome ah oh, what a what a great way to end the show <laughs> <laughs> now that about wraps up this episode of star wars beyond the films we'd like to thank you once again for hanging around us as we ponder on sharing our fandom remember you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the star wars report website second airborne division of podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com just find that little podcast tab episodes are also available on stitcher and on itunes which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it you can also find links to our episodes on both our twitter and our Facebook. Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films, or just type in "Star Wars Beyond the Films" in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us—our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you, fellow fans. So, if you have any Star Wars and/or Legends questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at SW Beyond Films at starwarsfanworks.com Now lastly, before we go, we want to mention to you our sponsors Audible. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars Legends universe or that canon one or any other genre without being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members, they can exchange any book within 12 months. That's one year with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible, just might be right for you so once again four stars beyond the films this has been mark and whistler and nathan saying thanks for listening in. may the force be with you and don't quote us the
0: odds that we'll see this kind of debate over rule of law rule of men in the near future in the united states and we'll have a candidate who becomes president who's like you know we're great we're gonna make america great again you know why because i am the parliament Wait, we don't have a parliament? Crap, I should have (laughs) studied.
1: What are the odds that Mace Windu lived and he's gonna be the new Darth crate?
0: Oh God, he's gonna start that stuff again. I'm gonna have to do a whole nother vlog to tell people about intellectual honesty. Just stop. It could happen. It's not, but it could. It could, it just hasn't yet. Don't be feeding into those Twitter trolls. (laughs) Here's some more crumbs. Here's some more crumbs. So you got John Ast- Not Astrander. That's that's not right. I don't know. You're going to have to read an actual book. Oh, damn it! I forgot how to do that. As I always tell my wife, reading is fundamental. And as, always, as she always replies to me, no it isn't.
1: <laughs> now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to- <clears throat>
0: I gotta drink water, I'm missing syllables here. <laughs> so you're saying you're about to go into the audible thing, so you're saying that the uh, the sponsor is not Nair for them eyebrows?